every parent thinks about what their kids are eating. And a lot of parents think about it even before their kids start eating solid foods. There really are strategies that parents can use to raise a child who eats everything. I mean, it doesn't always work, but today we're gonna talk about what you can do as a parent to help your family eat a nutritious diet. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. most important things you can do to raise your kids to be healthy eaters is to understand what is normal and what's typical. Then you can figure out how to navigate that. And my favorite normal human trait regarding eating is called food neophobia. It's the caution that every human takes about eating a new food, something that's unfamiliar to them. And that was an important survival tactic for all humans. We had to be really careful about eating unfamiliar foods to avoid being poisoned. I mean, how do you know that a tomato is edible unless you eat it and die? So you got to be careful. This means that every person is going to have a little caveman part of their brain that still exists that's going to hesitate before trying something they haven't eaten or seen someone else eat. This is probably why all humans have a preference for sweet and salty foods and have an inborn aversion to bitter and sour foods. Bitter and sour tastes often are a warning that a food is poisonous. The next important thing to know is that genetics plays a huge role in what we are willing to eat. Some people are genetically very sensitive to bitter tastes. If you have a gene that makes you taste bitter more than other people taste it, you're not gonna eat as many vegetables. And vegetables are the most rejected food in kids that have a genetic sensitivity to bitter taste. As parents, we need to know that our kids might not be rejecting a food. It might taste horrible if they have a gene that makes things taste more strongly. And we gotta cut them some slack when we give them a new food. You wouldn't want your child to put just anything you gave them into your mouth I mean, they should have a chance ahead of time to examine a food. They should see it before they eat it themselves. I mean, my brother, he ate everything. It was disgusting. I've seen him eat cigarette butts and snail shells. I think he ate a fly once too. And that is way worse than having a picky eater. There are a lot of important ways for you to introduce foods to your kids. And who better to ask about strategies for setting a kid up to eat a great diet than an expert in picky eaters? I myself have a favorite dietitian. Her name is Jennifer Anderson, and she started a group called Kids Eat in Color. I recommend her online class, Better Bites, and she has a fantastic website with resources. I asked her what parents can do when they first introduce solids to their baby that can set them up for great eating later. When I think about starting babies on solids, I really want to come at it from three lenses. And I also want to have fun, which is maybe the most important thing because babies feed off of us, right? So I want to think about flavors and variety. I want to think about getting my baby to table foods as quickly as works for them. And I want to think about responsive feeding. And what that basically means is, am I letting my baby decide when they're going to eat and what they're going to swallow, 
Or am I playing that little airplane game where I'm, you know, flying that spoon around in the air and then I, as soon as they open their mouth, I shove it in there. That's not responsive feeding because you're saying, how much can I get in that baby's mouth? Responsive feeding is saying, hey, is the baby interested? Are they putting their head toward me? Are they opening their mouth? When we have those three things, the responsive feeding, the variety of flavors and textures, and the goal of moving toward the table foods as quickly as possible, that is what really sets us up for a positive feeding experience, no matter how we go about it. What I'm really looking for is, is the baby ready for solids? Can they sit? Are they reaching out for foods and bringing them toward their mouth? And when I say sit, are they sitting with either support or able to sit on their own, things like that. I want to make sure that they are ready to eat solids. I'd rather not, unless there's a medical reason, see them laying back in a, in a baby recliner, being spoon-fed purees on a spoon, unless there is a medical reason. And the reason for that is we do want to establish, hey, we want to help this baby get to table foods as quickly as possible. And so whether I'm going to be starting with a puree or starting with a table food or chunk of food, like in baby led weaning, I still want to have my baby sitting up, aware, able to tell me when they want food in their mouth and ready to have a good time, like ready to join us at the table. I'm often asked what age to start foods? And the answer is when a child is ready. There's not a right age exactly. There's a window. And the window is going to be somewhere between four and six months. Because these are the ages when you want to look for signs of readiness. So what are the signs of readiness? A child is ready to start eating if you're eating and they are following your food with their eyes or opening their mouth. And the second thing they need to be able to do is indicate to you that they are full. So if you're feeding your baby with a bottle or they're breastfeeding and they pull off the nipple and they don't want any more, then they are indicating to you that they're done. And if they can do that, then they can probably manage trying some solid foods. Jennifer explained that there are three aspects to focus on as you introduce solids. Introducing a variety of flavors and textures, understanding the concept of responsive feeding, And lastly, getting to table foods as quickly as possible. These are the three things that we will focus on in the first half of this episode. And in the second half, we'll talk about approaches to healthy eating with older kids, well, and with adults. So in terms of flavors, a child's openness to taste new flavors is going to be best before 12 months of age. So this is a critical time to introduce a huge variety of flavors. And this actually starts in the womb when the mom is pregnant. Early taste experiments in unborn babies and in newborns show that exposure to your flavors affects your later taste preferences. There was a really cool study of mothers who were given carrot juice to drink when they were pregnant in their third trimester and another group that were given carrot juice to drink when they were breastfeeding. And they had kids who were far more likely to eat carrot puree when it was first offered to them. We do think that babies taste foods in the womb and from breast milk. What you eat during pregnancy matters. Start by eating a variety of foods when you are pregnant. And then in terms of introducing flavors to your baby, Jennifer Anderson shared some of her tips. So we do know that there is some sort of special time frame between four and six months where the flavors are being established. There is something special about that specific window. 
One of the things that you can actually do without starting solids with your baby is to actually introduce them to flavors. Now, when I'm talking about a flavor, I'm talking about a drip, like like the smallest speck of a flavor. This is called flavor training. Surprisingly, there is more There are more studies out there on this than I was expecting when I looked into it and researched it. Now, it's different. I always like to make it very clear. We are not starting solids at four months unless there's some reason. But if you put a tiny little piece of wetness off of a beat on your your clean hand, you know, and you let your baby stick out their tongue and taste it, these tastes may actually feed into that flavor window to help your baby have a higher tolerance to bitter foods. So that could be a flavor like spinach or broccoli or collards or kale or something like that. We recommend if you do want to experiment with this sort of thing that you start with a vegetable because they don't really need any additional flavor exposure to something sweet, you know, formula or breast milk, those are sweet. They don't really need any more sweet exposures, but it's harder to get a bitter flavor when you're that young. And those those sorts of flavors can, can add up. It doesn't mean you're not going to have a picky eater. It doesn't necessarily mean anything because there's not enough studies out there to say, oh, hey, everybody should do this. I like to say, hey, there's enough studies out there to say, yeah, there's probably not any harm. Same with breast milk, the flavors that the mom is eating go into the milk. With formula feeding, the baby is getting steady flavors, but flavor training can be another way if parents think it's interesting that they could add more flavors into that range of four to six months. There there were some interesting ideas around that in one of the studies we looked at. This should never be a should though. We want to take as many of the shoulds out of parenting as we can. And flavor training does not even sort of make the list of a should. If it sounds fun, though, because there's things that just sound fun. If it sounds fun, go ahead, give it a try, see how it works for you. Well, I'm thinking about the moms who feel so guilty. They like admit to me with their like four-month-old. They're like, I took a little piece of ice cream and I put it on her tongue. (laughs) And they feel horrible. I'm like, well, that is flavor training, right? Yeah, it is. (laughs) I mean, that's fine. It'd be better if it was soup, but But ice cream's fine too. It's like... Your baby was going to get exposure to ice cream anyway. Right. It should be fun. Feeding should be fun. It should be fun. Breast milk flavor changes over time, but formula doesn't. Formula tastes the same every day, but breast milk will change depending on what the parent has eaten. There's not any literature on this, but flavor training might be a consideration for parents who are formula feeding. The next factor that Jennifer recommends is to help kids to learn their own hunger and fullness cues. This goes for toddlers too, not just for babies. Let them learn how it feels to be hungry and what it feels like to be full without you force feeding or pushing food on them. We find families who use pressure to get their kids to eat a lot or to get their kids to eat a little. In either case, when you find yourself pushing your child to try something, pushing your child to eat more, pushing your child to eat less, taking food away. In any of those scenarios, what you're doing is you're overriding your child's internal cues. That's a fancy way of saying 
Are they hungry? Are they full? The only person who can really know this is your child. Some kids have a harder time learning to know what those cues mean. That feeling is that, does that mean I need to eat? Does it not? But a lot of kids have a good sense of, am I hungry? Am I full? And when they're hungry, they show those hunger cues. They open their mouth, they put their head forward. When they're full, they stop eating. They start throwing the food on the wall. They start doing things like that. They start laughing, feeding the food to the dog, all those sorts of things. So when we are inserting ourselves and we're saying, hey, you have to eat this. You can't get down until you eat this. I'm gonna take that away because you ate too much of it. We're not allowing kids to get that experience of listening to those cues. I have a fullness cue and I eat more than that. Oh, wait, I'm a little uncomfortable. Hmm. Oh, I have a hunger cue and I didn't eat enough. And after the meal, I'm still hungry. Oh, interesting. They gather all this data over time and that helps them to make decisions moving forward. And what we really wanna do as parents is to help them listen to those cues and to trust those cues. Kids need experience to learn how to do things. And I know this because my son is learning how to drive right now and it has been frankly terrifying. I know he needs the experience of judging how long it takes him to stop at a stoplight or how closely to follow a car. And young kids need to experience how they feel when they eat. Parents interrupt this learning when we impose our expectations on how much and how quickly a child should eat. Give your child the opportunity to learn how to eat with your guidance. Their eating time needs to be uninterrupted. You can't pay attention to your hunger cues if you're watching a movie. This is related to what Jennifer was saying about responsive eating. It needs to be what you're doing at the time. Eat when you need to be eating and don't be distracted. One of the strategies that emphasizes responsive feeding is called baby-led weaning. Baby-led weaning is a method of introducing solid food to babies where purees and spoon feeding are skipped totally, and instead you give finger foods that a baby feeds themselves. Feeding starts with the baby sitting at the table with the family with a variety of foods in front of them, and they eat whatever they want and whatever they can grab and get into their mouth. I accidentally did this when my daughter grabbed my taco at eight months. I was freaked out that she was going to choke on that shell and she did fine. But baby led weaning wasn't a thing then. So this method emphasizes independence of the baby. And it's really popular with parents who are looking for ways to avoid picky eating. I was curious what a dietitian thinks of baby led weaning. I mean, I think Baby led weaning is safe when it's followed correctly. I think it is a great way to introduce uh, foods to babies. I think it does follow those three things that we talked about before, which are the responsive feeding, introducing a variety of flavors and textures, and also moving to table foods as quickly as you can, which is right at the start. So I think it's got a foundation there. And I love that. And I know so many parents who do it love it. My pause is, it is often being held up as the best way to start feeding your baby solid foods. And that is where I have a problem. Because when you say something is the best, everything else is not the best. And so we have so many moms, parents, but mostly moms, who are now saying, I failed my baby because I didn't do baby led weaning. My baby is picky because I didn't do baby led weaning. I failed my baby because I didn't do baby led weaning. I cannot tell you how many moms are feeling this pressure. 
I'm not okay with that. Not okay with that at all. There's also these ideas that baby led weaning will completely prevent picky eating. This is put forth by all sorts of people who are very involved in this movement. That's not what the research shows. You know, you look at, look at studies that compare baby led weaning and puree feeding. And yes, the research does tend to show that babies who do baby led weaning tend to be a little bit less picky and they tend to have a little bit more enjoyment of food. But that doesn't mean that everybody who did puree feeding is a picky eater. And it also doesn't mean that every baby who did baby led weaning is not a picky eater. And I know that can sound very confusing, but we have parents coming and saying, I did everything right. I fed my, it did baby led weaning, and now I have an extreme picky eater. Or, and then of course, there's plenty of examples of, hey, I did puree feeding and my baby eats everything, right? So, well, I think it's perfectly fine to do baby led weaning. I think it's great. The occupational therapists and other dietitians on our team really like to give parents permission to not just do baby led weaning. Because if you're starting on baby led weaning, it's not going right. You might hear, oh, just give them more time. Oh, it's fine. Just give them more time. Just give them more time. And what we're finding is some parents all of a sudden have extreme issues with an older baby who hasn't really gone through the, the developmental milestones that they need to, or they didn't get caught as having some sort of sensory challenge or something like that, because they just kind of got caught up in this, the messaging around baby led weaning. We like to encourage parents to, if you, hey, if you want to do baby led weaning, that's great. Fully support you. If you're not quite sure, we recommend puree to table, which is what we call starting with purees and moving as quickly as you can to table foods. And maybe that means you do that in two weeks. I don't know, you know, but you have options that way. That way. And if you're doing baby low weaning and it's not working, take a step back, do some purees. It's going to be okay. There are a lot of good aspects about the concept of baby led weaning, particularly that the child can regulate their own interest in food. I recommend a hybrid. Take the principles of baby led weaning and incorporate them into your feeding plan. And I love this idea of puree to table. You want to start with purees and move as quickly as you can to table foods. And there's one great way to do this, and that's with a food mill. There are tons of different food mills, but basically it's a grinder that you turn with your hand to make a textured puree that you can feed your baby. The only caveat I would say is to be sure that there's not a lot of salt in the food because babies can't handle a lot of salt. There's one other baby food device I like, and it's called the Bay Abba. It steams and purees the food in the same device, and it's really simple to use, but it's kind of expensive. The food mill. This is my product. This is my product. The one feeding product that I think every, <laughs> every family should have is a baby food mill. How has the baby food mill gotten out of the public eye? I don't understand. Because literally, you can sit there, make one dinner. You don't even have to cook a special preparation for the baby weaning baby. You just make the dinner, put it in the food mill. You get a texture puree, which gives you a variety of textures. You get all the same flavors in the meal. And it took you 30 seconds at the table. Yeah, I adore it. And you can bring it to your friend's house. Mm -hmm. You can take it to a restaurant. You can take it anywhere you want. It's amazing.
kids have moved to table foods, there are still other important concepts that can help you guide your family to have a healthy relationship with food. As parents, we are our kids' guides. The goal is for them to leave our nest and leave our home and be successful. And being able to feed themselves nutritious foods when they're faced with elementary school lunch table or the college dining room and eventually their own kitchen, that's our goal. One of the most powerful influences on our family is how we talk about food. The words that we use matter. But even more important is to pay attention to when you are making a moral judgment about a food. For example, calling a food bad. And this relates to how we deal with junk food. How does a registered dietitian navigate this with her own kids? I asked Jennifer what she thinks about, quote, junk food. Yeah. I mean, it's delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's part of our lives. I absolutely love potato chips. Um, Adds a lot to my life. You know, I I think, like you said, pulling every single processed thing out of our kids' diets may work for some families, but it's not going to work for most of our families. And once kids go to preschool, once they go to school, they're going to start seeing this stuff. How are they going to be interacting with? I'm a big fan of like push it down the road as far as you can. So yeah, your baby doesn't know what candy is. No reason to give it to them unless that means something to you, but like push it down the road, push it down the road. All of a sudden your baby is two. You can't push it down the road anymore. You have a second child. You probably couldn't push it down the road very far at all because your two-year-old gave your baby a lick of their lollipop. There's these sorts of realities. So push it down the road. And then once your child sees it or knows about it or has tasted it or, you know, grandparent gave them a bite and now they want to see it, then is a good time to begin to just kind of say, okay, how is our family going to handle adding in fruit snacks? That's something that my kids are interested in right now. Like, how do you want your child to feel after they have chips, do you want them to feel guilty or feel like they did something bad to themselves or they are a bad person because they ate a bad food? We really have to think about how little kids are you know, internalizing this. The psychologist on our team says a young child is not really able to distinguish between a bad food and a I'm bad for eating that food. Right? They can't distinguish between those two ideas. So if you tell them chips are bad, but then you serve them chips, that is confusing on so many different levels. So instead of calling foods bad or good, I love to just call them what they are. They, we have this great vocabulary of what they are. These are potato chips. Those are fruit snacks. This is chicken, broccoli, dinner. It's not healthy food. It's not unhealthy food. It's not good food. It's bad food. It just is food. Now, as they get older, they're going to come home from school and ask things like, hey, Gary told me that chocolate is bad for you. Like, He's like, but it's not, right? It's just that some food has a lot of things in it and some foods don't have as many things in it. That's how we generally talk about it. Like broccoli has a lot of things. It's going to do a lot of things in your body. Chocolate's not going to do as many. Uh, But we have to kind of begin to introduce these ideas early on that Yeah, chocolate is chocolate. It doesn't have a story behind it. We put a lot of emotion and judgment into the way we talk about food. The advertising culture we live in, it plays into this. So spend some time this week identifying when you are judging a food and see if you can take that emotion out of the conversation. 
A great strategy with your kids is just be factual. Foods have nutrients in them that our body needs. Some foods have a lot of nutrients and some have less. And they all have different nutrients. That's why we need to eat a lot of different things. And food, food can make us feel good. So we need to balance getting the nutrition we need with enjoying food. I like to tell my patients that each color of food has a different nutrient that your body needs. And that's why you have to eat a variety of different colors of foods. I challenge them to count the colors at each of their meals. And then there's those smarty pants kids that tell me, well, I, I can just eat jelly beans or Skittles. And I tell them, if you're eating good enough food to get your nutrients, you can have foods that have a little less good things in them. I think it's fair for 10% of what you eat to be what most people would call junk food. And there's one other strategy to raising a healthy eater. That is, don't force kids to eat a food. Studies that looked at people that were forced to eat foods as a kid by their parents show that 70% of people say they don't eat the foods they were forced to eat as kids. In that study, they also reported that they have feelings of shame, guilt, anger, fear, disgust, and humiliation about specific foods. I want you to have a lot of patience with your kids. Introduce foods slowly. And the way you measure your success is by having had a really pleasant mealtime, regardless of how much your kids ate. The other thing I see parents do so that they aren't so anxious about their kids not eating vegetables is to give them food in a pouch. I don't like pouches. Well, except if you're at the zoo or out of the park and you need something that's convenient, it's fine. Here's what Jennifer says about pouches. They are expensive and they aren't really food exposures. Most of the time they're mixed with like a pear puree or an apple puree. So they really just have a taste of that apple or pear. Um, and the kids aren't getting the skills that they need to eat. Um, I have this little highlight of my son eating yogurt with a spoon versus eating a pouch. And you can really see what this looks like because when he's drinking out of the pouch, he's just kind of looking off into the distance, he's sucking, and he's not really paying attention to anything. When he's eating with a spoon, he's looking at his food, he's developing those motor skills to eat with the spoon, he's getting it into his mouth, he's more interactive, right? This gets back to that idea of responsive eating. It applies to older kids and adults too. Pouches don't expose a kid to a new food in a way that they would recognize the food later. Many studies have shown that a child needs to be exposed to a food maybe 10 to 15 times, and that can be through any exposure, touching, smelling, smearing the food. They need to do this in order to accept the food as a food, something they can eat. They need sensory experiences of food, and a pouch just doesn't give you that. Kids need to experience the look, the consistency, and the texture of a new food that they haven't eaten before. Studies have also shown the important role of the parent and other people around them in shaping a kid's attitudes towards foods. One study showed that children were more likely to try a new food if they saw their mother eat the food at the same time, especially if she acted enthusiastic about it. The effect of seeing a parent eat food was far stronger than when the parent just verbally encouraged the child. 
This is just one of many reasons that family meals are so important. There are too many studies to mention that show the benefits of family meals for social development and for healthy eating. The other thing you can do is involve kids in preparing a meal. This helps them to like more foods. So get yourself a kitchen stool or get a toddler knife for young kids and let older kids make their own food, even as young as age nine or 10. We do model what our kids eat. So be aware of what you are not eating. And if you don't like a food, say you're learning to like it. Don't say, I don't like it. Because you don't want to give an idea to your child about a particular food. And I want you to have family meals forever. Connection at family dinner gets really challenging as kids get older and they're running off in all directions for sports and other activities. So you can make it any meal. Breakfast is a fine time to plan a family meal. Or just plan a late night Friday pizza party. Fit it in whenever you can. Talk to your family and schedule regular family meals. Now, I know mealtime can be really stressful if you have a picky eater. In fact, you may have tried everything we talked about in this episode and mealtime is still miserable. It's not too late. On next week's episode, Jennifer Anderson returns and we talk about picky eating, mealtime battles, and food meltdowns. If you can't wait, visit Jennifer Anderson's site, kidseatincolor.com follow her on Instagram, or register for her course, Better Bites. Eating is something we do several times a day with our kids, and that's one reason it can be so stressful, because it happens all day long. But it doesn't have to be that way. Thank you to Jennifer Anderson and her team at Kids Eat in Color. I love the balance they offer between healthy eating and the realities of our home life. Be sure to follow this show so you don't miss the next episode on Picky Eaters. For more from the pediatrician next door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.